welcome to episode three of the Lensense podcast. Today, we're talking about racial identity. It's a hot topic for international and transracial adoptive communities. How does racial identity affect transracial adoptees? And what about those who never feel completely at home in any space because of third culture identities? Lily, why don't you get us started talking about your thoughts on this topic? Ooh, um, I don't know where to begin. Uh, I'll begin with my personal story. Um, I am Marshallese. Um, the Marshall Islands are located in the Pacific Ocean, above the equator, uh, sort of close to Japan and Australia, but um, I always tell people it's in the middle of nowhere. Obviously. I'm really bad at geography. I don't think I've ever associated <laughs> Japan and Australia in the same Well, part. Australia is below the equator and Japan's above and uh-huh. the Marshall Islands are above. So they're more, um, probably more close to Japan, mm-hmm. but I don't know distance wise exactly. Um, so a lot of people think of like Hawaii or New Zealand even when they think of like islanders um, or they think of Caribbean. <laughs> There's a lot of islanders there too, but um, specifically my group of people are Micronesians. So they're not exactly like Hawaiians, they're not Polynesian. Um, and then I know in Australia, they're considered uh, Melanesian, but I come from the I don't know what they do they call it my micro I don't know I'm not Wikipedia this is your story (laughs) (laughs) I just know I'm Micronesian by birth um and a lot of people will ask me um or they will assume my race and uh I like when people ask me but uh, it's always fun when people, sorry, let me put that on silent. <laughs> it's always fun when people assume my race because then I'm just like, uh. <laughs> and what, um, what types of things do people assume? Well, they assume I'm Hispanic. Uh, they assume I'm Mexican. And even like Hispanics will come up to me, speak Spanish. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't speak. <laughs> I'm like, I need to learn. And then I wonder, like, do they think that I, I'm just one of those Mexican-Americans that have no idea <laughs> how to speak their, like, my own culture's language? But it's, it's not even my culture. So I'm like, don't come at me. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm literally just American. That's what I tell people. But if, if they want to know, I do tell them, like, I'm a Pacific Islander. And I explain, like, the Marshall Islands. Um, I guess for Americans, I, I really try to um, educate them because they should know what the Marshall Islands are during uh, or in between World War One and Two. Um, the U.S. took over the Marshall Islands. Japan had previously occupied it, and uh, during that time. America or the U.S. tested an atomic bomb on one of the islands. Now they paid the islanders. They said, hey, evacuate this island. We want to test um, a bomb on there. And they paid them to leave. So it's not like they just came and took over. Um, They were compensated. (laughs) And um I sound like a true American right now. (laughs) I do sound like a true American. I'm, I'm not and I'm not taking away from like 
because you know i think we all know a lot about atomic bombs so yeah you might know that that island is no longer able to be habitat habited mm-hmm. habited mm-hmm. i don't know inhabited it's it's inhabitant <laughs> right now um and this is like decades later um because i imagine that was during the like 40s and right now it's 20, like yeah now we're in 2022 so yeah yeah we're getting close to 100 years that's crazy yeah so anyways um yeah so we we tested an atomic bomb on the marshall islands and if you like cartoons and you've heard of spongebob spongebob lives in bikini bottom the island that was bombed is called bikini atoll and so spongebob i always tell people i'm like spongebob is a radioactive sponge in the ocean that's why he talks that's why they all talk that's why it's all weird um somebody the creator i guess found that story and then they were like let's create a a little community down there um also we get the name for the bathing suit bikini from bikini atoll the designer um okay i never knew that for the bikini named it after the bikini atoll (laughs) so i mean we're uh, a a lot of the world is more connected to the marshall islands than they realize (laughs) wow yeah Um, yeah so i just think those are fun things but those are things that I learned as an American. I, I didn't grow up in my natural culture, the culture that I should have grown up in. Um, my mom is white. She adopted me when I was born, practically before I was born, because my birth mother lived with her several months um, mm-hmm. during her pregnancy. And so, um, yeah, I was born into this white family. I do have Islander siblings. They're all Marshallese as well. But um they're all a lot older and so I didn't get too submerged into their culture they did teach me a few things Mm -hmm. um (laughs) like for instance uh I was told by my sisters I was never allowed to fart in front of my brother (laughs) however I at the time when I was growing up my mom was a feminist she doesn't claim that anymore but I I just (laughs) want to say that growing up with a feminist you know like that stuff didn't matter yeah (laughs) you know she was a very like do-it-yourself kind of person and Uh kind of go against the grain if I don't know so um I didn't listen to my sisters (laughs) I still farted in front of my brothers and um yeah so just like little culture things they did teach me um and I think it's sweet. I took it for granted, obviously. <laughs> but um, how many of your siblings um, speak the language of Marshall Islands? All of them, except for my brother, Lucas. He was also adopted um, when he was an infant. I think he was about mm-hmm. two months old. And um, my mom actually worked in the Marshall Islands as a doctor, kind of doing Peace Corps Mm -hmm. type work I can't remember the exact company she worked for organization um but she adopted him in the 80s he was born in 88 so then she moved immediately afterwards back Mm -hmm. to the states and raised him a couple of years later somebody contacted her a friend um 
and said, Hey, I have another child that needs to be adopted. Would you consider? She almost didn't like adopt me because financially she was a single person with one child and she Mm -hmm. did have one of my older sisters um, at that time as well. So she had two kids and she was by herself. And a lot of people assume like, Oh, you're a doctor. You make a lot of money. But if you're the reason why my mom was a feminist is because, you know, women weren't commonly in that field of work, uh, physicians, and uh, often women were underpaid, like mm-hmm. <clears throat> paid less than men. They might have made yeah. more than other careers, but it there was still a, a huge comparatively, gap. yeah, yes. Even into like my senior year of high school, my mom was still being uh, like significantly underpaid than the men mm-hmm. in her field, um, so much so that she quit her job and um so yeah (laughs) that was a rabbit trail of like okay now we're talking about your mom (laughs) now we know all about Lilia um no that that's cool that's interesting information about the just kind of putting things into perspective and seeing you know that you've had to be proactive in learning about your ethnic history your you know your um ethnic you know your history your his your heritage um you know the Marshallese heritage and you've had your siblings to kind of ask questions to but it, you know the second part of your secondhand information is is very different from experiential information yes um so today as an adult um where do you find yourself you know do you um like, do you, have you ever thought about traveling to the Marshall Islands? And, and are you yes. still kind of on a pursuit to learn more about your history? Or do you just kind of feel like For it's sure. there? I, I do have a lot of connections into the Marshallese community. Um, and I because my siblings, all of them were born there, except for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and aside from my brother, who mostly grew up in the States like me, like my other siblings are still very immersed in the Marshallese community. So when I go visit them, you know, we try to um, do things within that culture. Like for Thanksgiving one year, I spent it with my younger sister. And while we did go to like an American restaurant, we also went Mm -hmm. to a Marshallese uh, gathering, Thanksgiving gathering. Uh So it was a potluck. Everybody just bought, brought pans of food. And then you grabbed a pan and you loaded it up with all the food that was brought in. Yeah. Like, like, you know, those disposable tin pans, like literally that was your plate. Like you would eat out of it, but then you'd go back and then you would fill up and then take it home. I know you would have loved it because it wasn't just like, it wasn't just turkey and chicken. It was also a lot of seafood and rice and Mm -hmm. just some really good stuff. Um, I love their chicken because they grill it. And I, mm-hmm. I'm just like obsessed with grilled chicken and they eat chicken on the bone, which is what I grew up eating. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I remember, I remember um, growing up, like the whole family talked about how you and your siblings would eat like the, would chew the, or chew the tip of the bone off and suck the marrow yeah. out. Was that? <laughs> so mostly my brother did, th- my brother, my oldest brother did that. Um, uh-huh. He would literally crack 
he still does it oh yeah crack the bone open and then suck out the marrow i don't do that (laughs) but um i do eat the joints most people just leave that and it i honestly i cringe a little when i see that people leave a little bit of meat on the bone as well because you know the marshall islands they're not a very wealthy community so like culturally you eat everything um Mm -hmm. and i'm sure that's similar to a lot of asian countries and um i don't know i i just feel like america is different than the rest of the world (laughs) um (laughs) we do we waste a lot here yes we do waste a lot here and yeah um, i cringe when we go to wing places yeah and people are eating wings and you see the like there's so much meat left on on i can't stand it it's so horrible (laughs) and then it just goes in the trash i'm like man what a waste (laughs) um but yeah a lot of people don't like chicken on the bone as well (laughs) and I think maybe that's an American thing because I don't know I just feel like if I went to Mm -hmm. another country that's very common you eat everything on the bone (laughs) yeah um also I feel like especially having married into a Mexican family you learn that like actually the bone gives a lot of flavor to things Mm -hmm. (laughs) so um that's just interesting um yeah while I do consider myself very American I also have taken a few little habits from the island culture (laughs) yeah so tell me a little bit about your childhood and kind of how the formation of your racial identity what was it like you know growing up in school what did people assume how did people treat you where did you what space did you feel at home in Um, talk to me a little bit about that I'm interested well, um, I grew up in a very small town in Georgia, so super Southern. Um, if you weren't white, you were either black or Mexican, and there was a small, small, small percentage of Asians, mm-hmm. and then there was me and my siblings. <laughs> um, so I always tell people, I'm the minority of the minority. <laughs> um, I know a lot of minorities like to point out that they're a minority here in the States. But mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, you don't have to tell me. Like, <laughs> I'm even smaller than your demographic. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think a lot of my peers, especially in elementary school, they were afraid of me because they didn't know what I was like you know the whole idea of being afraid of the unknown mm-hmm. um it really seeped into my peers as children um and so i would i had to ride the bus for a while and mm-hmm. in the mornings i was always the last one to be picked up before being dropped off at school cuz i lived really close to my school Mm -hmm. um but a lot of people tried to avoid me because they didn't know they were like oh you're not black you're not white you're not even Mexican they're Mm -hmm. like what are you you have cooties (laughs) um and it was very hurtful like I was always afraid to ride the bus because I'm like I'm gonna have to push somebody over and they're gonna be like you you touched me (laughs) um (laughs) but eventually you know people would get brave and ask me they'd be like what are you like are you mercanese and like what is mercanese like what (laughs) that really stood out to me what is mercanese 
I don't know that they're kids, you know, <laughs> we were kids at the time. So I, I really yeah. don't hold anything against them. They were just trying to figure out. Um, and I was at the same time. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I always consider, considered myself American. And I always knew that I was Marshallese because my mom was very proactive in like introducing me to the history of my culture. She had so many things that she brought back from the Marshall Islands since she lived there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, she has some things that even other Islanders don't have. For instance, mm-hmm. um, she has a stick map, which is literally what it, it is, the name of it. It's a map made of sticks. And um, I think they have like little calorie. Um, do you know what calories are? Nope. It's like a, it's like a <laughs> shell. <laughs> okay. Um, some people might know what that is, especially if you've played, uh, what's that one switch game? Um, oh my goodness. I'm brain farting on that game. It's like really popular. <laughs> I play it, but I haven't played it in a while. Anyways, besides the point. So each of those little shells represent the islands um but it's a very rare thing people don't use stick maps anymore we have gps's and um anyways but she she has that i think one of my brothers have already claimed it i'm like i really wanted it um so yeah I, i just felt like if people didn't know what i what i was as long as they asked me Mm-hmm. I, I felt like I could I could educate them. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it was hard in elementary school because everybody's initial reaction is, you know, ew. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was there a was there a space where you felt at home? As far as you know, um, having a shared identity. Um, shared culture, shared interest and habits. I'm sorry, say that one more time. <laughs> was there a space where you felt more at home, um, where you felt like you had more in common um, with other people? Um, I don't know. I always felt like everywhere I went, I was different. And, and I think a lot of adoptees regardless of their race could probably relate to that Mm -hmm. um because it's not just about race uh it's like a lot deeper like identity I think goes beyond race but as Mm -hmm. far as like racial racial identity itself yeah I I felt like I was never around anyone that I belonged to um like well I love my mom like that was the only that was my person So I would say I probably felt the most at home with my mom, even though we're a different race. (laughs) Um, As far as like other cultures, other races, she, she had us going to a black Baptist church for a while Mm -hmm. and I loved it there. They were very um, welcoming Mm -hmm. and um it was nice, but at the same time, like I wasn't black <laughs> and yeah. I couldn't relate to being black ever um, because that's a totally different history right? Um, as far as race and culture. And mm-hmm. um, I felt very privileged that I could experience, you know, 
living alongside them and learning yeah. their things culturally. Um, but yeah, and, I, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think it's interesting too, you know, the fact that you were basically born into um, a white family and, you know, an American family, you grew up, um, you know, with particular, you know, kind of values and expectations and, you know, cultural um, experiences. But um, I think about too, like with older child adoption or um, <clears throat> even people who are not adoptive communities, but have, you know, done any time abroad or lived in different regions, different areas. Um, there's a, a, a term that's used and there was a book written called Third Culture Kids. And it's about kids who, you know, part of their developmental formation, part of, you know, their um, identity formation was in a different culture, a different setting. Um, and then they moved to another one and they kind of, they kind of um, merged the two, you know, create this third culture is the idea. So for instance, um, I have a son who was adopted from Colombia um, at 13. So his primary culture, his primary language is um, Spanish and Colombian, um, specifically from Bogota. Like he even, um, you know, if you ask him where he's from, he's from Colombia, but if someone's from a different city, they're not from Colombia. <laughs> so his, his kind of perspective on things is, is he's from Bogota, you know, that's Colombia. And so, <laughs> um, it's interesting. And like my kids, you know, we lived in Bolivia for five years and my, my youngest was four when we moved and she has no memory of the U S before Bolivia, like her only, the, you know, <laughs> as a, she's a teenager now and her oh, no. idea, her perspective of America is after Bolivia. So she feels <laughs> um, more Bolivian at heart than she does American and yeah, really actually so struggled being here. Um, and so, you know, and I'll say this, you know, I lived there for five years. I grew up in a white family in rural Mississippi, <laughs> you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, definitely feel at home pretty much within my demographic, but having lived abroad, I studied in Mexico, I, you know, most of my friends were, I'm growing up were Chicanos or, you know, we were, I was around a lot of Hispanic culture and after living in Bolivia and having Hispanic kids, because, you know, uh, Daniel's Colombian, my girls are Mexican, we lived in Bolivia for a while, I have a son in Bolivia, and so um, I also feel like, um, feel very at home within the Latino culture, but I'm as white as, as can be, and so, you know, I've even struggled as an adult having a, a solid formation within one particular um, culture, but as we experience the world in different, you know, settings and, and, you know, different environments, we begin to, our culture, cultural identity changes, our racial, the, the yeah. things that we feel, you know, that, that we are, the things that we enjoy or identify with, those things change as we get older. Um, and I know for me, I've struggled even as an adult and my kids, I see them struggling, you know, with, uh, I mean, with simple things, like how do we greet each other, you know, because, um, what my kids are used to, they're used to kissing on the cheek and giving a hug and saying hello a million times and making sure you say goodbye to every single person, which is very different from the American culture that we live in now, you know, where it feels rude to just, you know, throw your hand up and say bye and walk out the door. <laughs> um, and so even little things like that, 
as a family, we've struggled with because of that kind of third culture identity of, of you know, blending different cultures. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you relate to, to some of that? Just feeling like you're a, a you know, a conglomerate of different things and not quite at home in any one of them? Yeah, definitely. Uh, like I said, I, I don't really feel like I fit in in any subculture. Like I, when I'm around the Marshallese community, like I don't relate to them whatsoever and I feel horrible. I'm like, man, I'm so, um, as you know, the Hispanic so gringo. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, you know, I, I get around like my white family and I feel like, man, I'm so like, I'm such an oddball. I'm not exactly like mm. even my white family. Um, and I often refer to them as vanilla. <laughs> I just <laughs> think, I think that's sweet, but um, yeah. I don't think some of them like that. <laughs> and, <laughs> so I've tried to get away from saying that, but I think that's silly. I'm like, what? I don't know. I just okay. think, <laughs> I think in America, we've become a little too sensitive when it comes to racial terms and yeah. talking about race um I mean especially in the last decade some really major things have happened and yeah definitely um but if you go to a, another country or even yeah I would I would say if you go to another country you find that they're a lot more open and oh yeah curious. they're right. more like hey we want you to try on our clothes we want you to like Mm-hmm. try dancing these dances with us um I right. visited Uganda one time and like if you weren't dancing with them it was weird like right. they would literally grab you and be like come on <laughs> um yeah and, and they, so they we... wanted you to eat their food but here in the right. states we have that term gatekeeping like everybody's uh-huh. gatekeeping everything but and cultural like, appropriation that and... doesn't make any sense because uh, you know you have uh, other countries um making videos that are proud of their they're proud they're of like, their heritage yeah. and they want to share that that's what you know i've right. traveled a, i've traveled a good bit i've you know been a lot of different places i know you've traveled and uh, i've never ever encountered a, a person of a particular culture or a particular place that did not want to share that with me um that didn't want me to you know i remember when when my wife and I, when we first traveled to Bolivia to visit um, before deciding to move there, you know, we were up in the, um, this, this um, part of the city called El Alto, which is near La Paz, the capital and um, very indigenous area. And we were, you know, out of the city, kind of in this, this kind of rural area where cultures, you know, really important to them. They're making chuño, which if you don't know what chuño is, C-H-U, end with a tilde o it's these potatoes that they kind of freeze dry and they peel them with their feet um by rolling them on the ground anyway this area is this really indigenous um beautiful area and you know we're walking through this little market there and the lady comes out and she dresses my wife all up like you know a local person you know and you know putting the hat on her and the the poncho and the you know all these different things and wanted to take a picture with her and wanted to share (laughs) that you know that culture wanted to share that part of their their heritage they're proud of it and 
so yeah, we, we get real sensitive in the States. Um, and I think some of it is, is that we become a little bit territorial because we are afraid of losing who we are. So like, I think, I think when we go to another place, like if you go to Uganda or if you go to, you know, Beijing or you go to, you know, wherever you're going, if you go to Cusco and, and Peru and you are experiencing kind of the, the culture that's there, the foods, the, the clothing, the language, the music, the dancing, the, you know, whatever it may be, um, even if it's like tattoos and, you know, whatever, if you're experiencing those things, the people that are there are surrounded, inundated by their own culture. There's a lot of security there. But the U.S., we're kind of a melting pot. You know, we've got some of everything. And I think because there's so much mixture here, there's so much of a of a blend. There's there's so many different representations that there's almost this fear of if I share this, then where's my identity? Where is my my place? Because, you know, as a you know, as a white American, I may not feel at home you know, in a black community, or if a, a, a Hispanic American may not feel at home in an Asian American community, there's, we, we kind of, we look for that place where we quote unquote belong. But I think in the U.S. we're so sensitive to it because, you know, subconsciously we think that we're going to lose our home. We're going to lose that thing. You know, this is just me thinking, you know, um, off the top of my head, but those are some thoughts that I, that I, that come to mind when I think about the issues that we are so, the, the reasons that we could apply to the fact that we're so sensitive talking about race, which is a necessary conversation. It's necessary as a nation, but it's also very necessary for adoptive parents who have, you know, kids that are of a different heritage than they are. I I do understand why the topic is polarizing yeah it it i see why it's sensitive because you know while it's it's great to highlight our differences there are some differences that are injustices Mm -hmm. um and so i i don't want people to think that i i don't understand because i like i I am the minority of the minority. Um, And so I I really do see it all. Like there are a lot of things that uh, there are a lot of ways that in America, we need to progress a lot more. Mm -hmm. And and in a lot of ways, we're way more progressive than a lot of other countries. Mm -hmm. So while culturally countries are open to foreigners, um, I'd say at the same time they're not as far as like governmental things and like mm-hmm. career things yeah we're, we're probably a lot more progressive in that sense um but i i think a lot of people don't realize that because right. you know, obviously the other countries are not going to talk about or their governments maybe won't let mm-hmm. allow them to talk about how maybe they're more racist in those countries than we are. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, yeah, like in Bolivia, the you know, in a lot of Latin America, actually, there's a there's a lot of unspoken racism, a lot of prejudice yeah. that, that goes on. And um, like my son, he's very dark skinned, um, and 
you know, we've gone places where he's gotten looks because he was in a more affluent area or or restaurant and the dark skinned people don't have money there. You know, it's kind of this this unspoken, nobody talks about it, but it's this expectation that yeah. if you're this color or if you're this shade or whatever, then you're exactly. gonna have more money or have more education or there's these assumptions. Friend, I have a friend who visited um I believe it was Romania and she is she's actually from Russia. She was adopted as well. Um, but she was a, a lot a little bit older, so she has some memories mm-hmm. from being in an orphanage in Russia, but she's dark skinned. Her mm-hmm. birth mother um was and if she's still alive, is a gypsy. Mm-hmm. And gypsies have a really bad reputation all around the world. Um they're probably more widely accepted here in the states but like you were saying we're a melting pot and yeah and like we are more accept we're more accepting than we realize (laughs) um Mm -hmm. or i guess we have more freedoms here not that we're accepted exactly um and so she was going into a store and the store owner like tried to push her out they were like get out like you can't be here Mm -hmm. um but she was with a host family and they were like no she's american she's with us and they were like oh okay they kind of mm. backed off but yeah you know, if they hadn't been there to represent her she would have been kicked out just because she looks exactly like a gypsy um, yeah and so yeah I just think um we have a lot more freedom here in the states to talk about these things um mm-hmm. we can post about it on TikTok or YouTube um or even like Facebook but if you go to another country, you you don't have the freedom to actually speak yeah. these things that we're talking about right now. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think if we were in another country, probably our podcast would get flagged. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I'm sure when you upload, you'll see, you probably can see where this might not be able to um, upload to, like some countries might not have access to right yeah um what about so kind of a a little bit of a detour on the topic but do you so being a person and I'm just going to refer to you as a person of color um my cinnamon cousin um if I'm (laughs) vanilla you're cinnamon (laughs) um I was gonna go caramel but (laughs) okay well you can be caramel then um but anyway, so as a as a caramel, um, growing up in a white family, whenever you began to be more independent and became an adult and were out from under the umbrella of your adoptive family, do you feel like you were prepared to deal with being a person of color in the U.S.? And what I mean, where I'm kind of going with this is, I think of a lot of transracial families that are, are that have adopted a child that's of a different race um, and particularly kids of color that grow up in white families. Um, you know, a lot of families, adoptive families may say something to the effect of, well, I don't see color or I love them, you know, despite. Um, but I think we do them a disservice if we don't teach them about their heritage and kind of help them prepare for what they're going to face as an adult because we have to realize that prejudice exists. You know, there, there are, 
um, even if it's unspoken, even if it's not, you know, black and white and laws yeah. and things there, it exists. And I wonder how well our kids are prepared um, when they get out from under that umbrella. So can you speak to that a little bit? Do, how prepared um, do you feel? You know, like, I feel like I was pretty exposed growing up, um, especially growing up, in a, growing up in a small town. Mm-hmm. Um, like everybody's opinions kind of worn on their sleeve. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, we had a neighbor that um, I was always told they were racist. Uh, they would like look at my sisters really funny like you know um Mm -hmm. but my brother played trombone and he would practice outside and that kind of broke that racial barrier um the 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 neighbor was like oh man he's playing such beautiful music on a beautiful instrument and he's brown (laughs) i don't think i've ever heard a trombone be called beautiful (laughs) i've never either but i just it cracks me up um (laughs) all i can think about is people's heads getting hit from the band members in the back oh man yeah um but no that that's such like a a a small thing but I feel like little things like that kind I kind of was exposed to a lot and having grown up going to a black baptist church that also opened up Mm -hmm. a lot of things that maybe I wouldn't have known or experienced had I not gone to that church um Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've ever gone to a black church during Mm -hmm. February but mm-hmm. they, there's a lot, um, they talk a lot about the past and the present yeah. and what they hope for the future. As, yeah, as an aside as as on that, yeah, as an aside on that, I have to say, I was very disappointed this, Feb- this past February. So we've only been in the States for three years since, you know, from coming back from Bolivia. And so, and my kids were not really school-aged. Um, I mean, they were just entering school when we moved to Bolivia. So obviously Black History Month is not a thing outside of the U.S. But when we came back, um, you know, I would ask my kids about Black History Month and about, you know, during February, kind of what things are you learning? Um, what are you, t- you know, talking about? Trying to open some dialogue with them. And this year I was very um, disappointed in the fact that several times I asked them, you know, what are you, what are you learning this week? What have you been learning this month? What are you studying? And, um, and their response was something to the effect of, oh, um, we don't talk about that at school, or our teacher's not doing anything for Black History Month, or um, we don't have any assignments that are related to that. And it's, you know, I know that's, that's kind of a taboo subject and kind of controversial. And some people would say, you know, well, um, we need to have a, a month for every race or, you know, whatever the defense is, but the truth be told for our minority populations, um, not just the, not just our, our black Americans, but, you know, Asian Americans and Hispanic Americans, there's a lot of our history that has, that has not been taught well. And I think a lot of that affects our kids identity, like just as they're growing up, you know, I know when I grew up, you know, I was able to look at all of these famous people that told me I could be whatever I wanted to be. You know, we had the 
um, the astronaut and we had, you know, the inventor of the of electricity or the light bulb and we had, you know, all of these different things. But growing up, I never learned about inventor, you know, black inventors or Asian inventors or like there were those um, the minority figures that had big influences on our history. I didn't learn about them. And for me, you know, it didn't it didn't matter much because you know, that wasn't my identity, but for my kids who, you know, I have, my kids are, are, you know, three, three, you know, four, four or five of them are Hispanic, you know, and they're Latino and very visibly Latino. And they, you know, they want to know who are the Latin voices that they can compare themselves to, where can they find their identity? And, so I was really disappointed this year when I found out that our kids' schools weren't really doing much. And that may just be the school they're at. I don't know how that is across across the board. I, I, would, countries, say, but. I would say this as a person of color, which I never refer to myself as a person of color, um, but as a person of color for the sake of this conversation, yeah. um, I will tell you that um, within the, I don't even know what to call within the minorities they will tell you that you can't depend on school to educate your kids mm-hmm. like you as a parent um and this is not just for adoptive parents but as a parent it's your job to educate your kids on you know who to look to um who what influences in in our culture or even outside mm-hmm. of our culture like within the world like it's your job as the parent to educate your kids right um because it like you said it is disappointing to see what the schools teach and how little maybe they teach as well Mm -hmm. um but I I definitely learned a lot like I said I went to a black baptist church there's a lot of things in the the black culture that are taught and I'm really grateful for that but they they aren't taught in school and Mm -hmm. in fact you might even hear like some conflicting things like Mm -hmm. schools telling me this thing about black history but actually this is what happened this is the whole context Mm -hmm. um is and so i for sure think the black community does a pretty good job of educating their Mm -hmm. children um I, I can't speak for other other communities. Um, mm-hmm. I know that I myself did my own research mm-hmm. as well as like my, I would ask my mom questions too, because she knew a lot. Right. Um, and so and I, I think that's I, important. Yeah. To that you have that open dialogue with your mom and she's able to be proactive and assertive when it comes to teaching those things and exposing you to those things. I think I love that, that you have in your, you know, history and your makeup of a, as a person that you have experience in diverse communities, you have experience in diverse settings, you know, and that's one thing I try to do as a parent as well is, you know, yeah, to educate my kids, you know, we, um, when we check out books from the library or whatever, I try to find, you know, Hispanic authors or, you know, books about, um, I, there's a couple of books that I've gotten about um, Hispanic kids growing up in America after coming here, you know, whether that be through, you know, they're Mexicans and they, they came, you know, during um, a big um, 
when there was a big migration and they were doing, you know, yeah. um, the crop, you know, uh, farming and everything. And, and so we look at those different histories and, and I want them to have that kind of exposure. I love that my kids have five years of living in outside of the U S you know, in an area that, you know, and they've been with, you know, affluent families, the wealthier class, and they've also been with, you know, truly impoverished people. I always thought it was funny that one place we lived in Bolivia, we were in a, uh, you know, four bedroom um, plus an office, um, two story house with a nice wall around it and um, this, you know, comfortable place. But right next door to us was an abandoned lot that was overgrown with, uh, you know, 40 year old car rusted up in it and a little adobe hut that was made out of out of dirt and mud with tin drawn over it and plastic bags to help, you know, insulate it, you know, whenever it's cold. And there was a little a single mom there with, you know, with three little girls that lived there in this adobe hut with, you know, they had no bathroom, you know, they had, they had stolen a little bit of our electricity. They ran a wire, but I just acted like I never saw it. Cause I was like, it's okay. They can, <laughs> they can have, you know, this, this, you know, whatever. But our girls would go to a private school with wealthy Bolivians and come home and then go over and play with these girls in the abandoned lot in their Adobe oh. house, you know, and of course our kids, you know, because of that, they always had lies. <laughs> they were always dirty, but, you know, but that experience was so invaluable because it, it really helped them to not see, you know, a person's demographic as making them better or worse than someone else. And as parents, you know, just touching on what you said, it is so important that we educate, that we talk to our kids, but that we also expose them. Uh, I yeah. think too often adoptive families talk to their kids about, you know, their culture and they may, you know, make the foods and they may have the art in their house and they may celebrate different things, but how much are they exposing their kids by taking them to across town to a, a church, a minority church or you know, taking them to a minority event? There's a, um, I don't know if you've discovered this in your research into, you know, the adoption community, but in mine, I found that there were a lot of people who felt very strongly about like if you're going to adopt outside of your culture are you willing to move to a place that has a population of your child's natural culture or natural um race mm -hmm. and I thought that was so interesting I'm like I never thought about it like that but like I grew up in a place where there were, were no other Islanders. There were other Asians because like mm -hmm. Pacific Islanders are kind of grouped with Asians. Mm -hmm. um, so I was thankful that like, you know, we could all kind of stick together. Not that we stuck together, but we, you know, like we could mm -hmm. relate to each other on the, on, on a level of like, nobody understands yeah. the Asian Pacific and Islander perspective, except for the Asian Pacific Islanders. Mm -hmm. um and often we were all called white because mm -hmm. we weren't any other um brown i'm quoting air right. <laughs> brown race um but i don't know i i just feel like that's a really good question to ask adoptive families like are mm -hmm. you willing to move so that your child is exposed to a culture that they could relate to people that could teach them how to do their simple thing like their hair 
um, teach them more about their food. While we can recreate food from another culture, it's different when mm-hmm. it's coming from the hands of somebody that like right, who grew up with it. Grew up with it, yes. Um, and I, I'm even learning a lot having married into a Mexican family. I'm like, babe, your mom only uses corn oil, and he's like, well, she's from a place where that's the only thing they had. I'm like, yeah, but we're in the States now. Like there's so many different oils. <laughs> um, but that, that's just, that was, that's a, a lack of my understanding, you know, like uh-huh. there's nothing really wrong with using corn oil. I'm just, I grew up using vegetable oil and <laughs> olive oil and also you like my mom's very healthy. So when she yeah. it, they don't understand, she, she only eats meats and vegetables. She, she barely does carbs anymore. She loves carbs, but yeah you know she's a very low carb very like health conscious person and mm-hmm. it, it's funny because my in-laws are they all have diabetes so my mom really cringes having <laughs> to see them eat a lot of tortillas even though yeah. even though they'll say oh it's corn tortillas though <laughs> yeah. I'm like I, I kind of side with my mom like it's still starch though I don't know right. <laughs> even though it's not flour it's still <laughs> anyway so it, yeah and that, that's an example of like I I've taken a little bit of my mom's culture mm-hmm. and it's, it's very ingrained in me like I'm I'm very right. much my mom's daughter um yeah. but yeah but it's important learning, for us to recognize those like unconscious bias that we have you know the yeah. ethnocentric bias that we have that you know that it um when we were living in Bolivia one thing I loved that um several people would say you know, when someone would visit from the States and they would, you know, we would walk to the market and they would see, you know, a guinea pig being cooked over a spit, you know, and, or, you know, whatever it may be. And they'll say, or, you know, the, the chicken's foots in the soup, you know, or whatever. And they would say, oh, that's so gross or you, that's, you know, and so we would always correct them by saying, it's not gross, it's different. Um, and, but we have such a tendency to say, because if it's different from what we're used to, from our cultural background or whatever we say oh that's nasty or that's not good or that's not the best choice or why don't they do this and and we forget that it's it's a different perspective entirely you know that that's their that's their culture and um you know and that's just that's (laughs) that may not make sense to us but that we have to recognize that sometimes we have those those bias kind of ideas well and some and we also have to recognize it goes even beyond the culture thing like they're eating those things because they that's what's available right and they can make they know how to make it well they know how to make Mm -hmm. it taste good um so yeah like like the whole corn oil thing like it it wasn't just that that's what she was used to that's what they had it's literally Mm -hmm. what they had available yeah. I think if she had, if there were other things available, they would have used it. But like mm-hmm. that, that's a very common staple back uh, yeah. where she's from. So, you know, that I just felt that was very ignorant of me to be, <laughs> ask my husband, like, why does she only use? Um, but I'm glad I asked because now I know. Yeah. And, and now I don't have to, you know, make my like ignorant assumptions. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, I just think racially in the adoptive community 
like it would be awesome if you can afford to adopt a child <laughs> which i shouldn't even have to say that those that sentence whatsoever yeah that's another topic we can talk about that next week maybe um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like if, if consider moving like yeah I just think it would be or at minimum consider finding as best a representation as you can in you know near you yeah. and get involved in that if there is um I mean we we're blessed to live you know in the Birmingham metro area so there's a you know tons of people here there's lots of different cultures um but but we try we you know the the hispanic festival in september we try to go to it you know or if we know there's going to be um some you know some event or something that's put on by the latino community we try to go to that or we go to the um latino grocery store and we'll you know try to find some things either you know imported or things that are produced here um and so we try you know try to have that type of exposure um families need to look and see, you know, what can we be involved in? If you've got a, a, a child that's adopted, that's, you know, that's black, go try to look at black churches, go, you know, if you've got a child who's Asian, go look at, there's a lot of Asian there's churches. There's a lot of Asian there. churches. Um, friends, just, yeah. you know, look and try to find what in your community, what in your area can you connect to? Um, I mean, because we recognize that, that moving, you know, you know, moving your whole family and everything may not be, you know, as feasible, but there's, that doesn't mean you do nothing. You know, you, you have to look and see, you know, what can we do to make sure our kids are, are bit properly exposed um, to enough diversity that they can find commonalities, that they can find a place where they feel more at home and, and can really work on that, you know, that their identity that's developing. Well, Lily, I think we are about up on time. So, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is a topic we could probably keep talking for hours on. It's um, such a complex thing. And I, yeah, so I feel like sides. we didn't even touch, we, we like barely touched the surface. Of right. Um, yeah, definitely. So we can read um, this. Yeah, and for um, anyone listening, if you've got comments, if you've got thoughts, share them with us. Let us know. Um, what you think about this topic? Do you have a, a personal story? Is there a bit of advice? What are your What are your thoughts on it? So, um, so yeah. So we'll join everyone next week uh, with episode four. Um, and yeah, y'all have a great day, Lily. You have a good day. I will talk to you later. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>